Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining The Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash The Shift and become a member of The Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's Steady. Dot media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest today is the writer Hilma Wolitzer. Born in 1930, Hilma had her first poem published at the age of nine. She then shelved that ambition in favour of marriage and children, as women often did in the 1950s. 26 years later, she had her first short story published. Then there was no stopping her. Her first novel was published at the age of 44, and since then she's published 14 books, the most recent of which is the career-spanning short story collection, brilliantly titled Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. If you, like me, love Elizabeth Strout, I guarantee you will love this book. There's this inner self who keeps striving for something else and something more, and it's exciting. Earlier this year, I was lucky enough to speak to Hilma from her apartment in New York about writing at nine and 90, being raised to be a housewife by a housewife, and how feminism changed her life. She also talked about losing her husband of 68 years to COVID during lockdown, why she can't think of anything worse than dating again, why she's not done yet, and why she doesn't mind being an old woman, but she definitely doesn't want to be an old girl. Hi, Hilma. Sam, at last. We made it. How are you feeling after your COVID experience? Oh, well, I've still got long COVID, but in the circumstances, I feel like it's not that important, you know. I had trouble for a while, but then it went away. Oh, that's good. We'll talk about that a little later, if that's okay. It's really lovely to see you. Um, Do you mind if we go right back to the beginning? 
right back to the very first thing you wrote when you were nine. Oh, my goodness. It was a very bad poem. And and it was published in a mimeographed publication sponsored by the New York Department of Sanitation, the garbage (laughs) truck division. Uh, We had a little after school program called the Junior Inspectors Club. And I submitted this poem and it was accepted. And my mother and I went, took the subway to the Department of Sanitation, where a very large man stood up behind a desk, shook my hand and gave me a, a piece of paper, which I no longer have, a kind of diploma. And it felt just absolutely marvelous. When we left, uh, the, the streets were lined with garbage trucks, which sort of felt official and and important and my mother took me out for an ice cream soda too so there was a real celebration like it almost like a garbage truck guard of honor for your yes yes (laughs) did you get the bug at that point when you were that young I did and I wrote I continued to write bad poetry and uh, I didn't grow up in a literary household I had very kind and loving parents and supportive parents but um, there weren't too many books around. And when I was writing these poems, I don't think they paid too much attention to them until my mother went to um, see a teacher for a parent-teacher conference. And she came home glowing and said to my father, Miss Frederick said that Hilma shows great promise. And after that, they would pay more attention to the little poems. And when they were playing cards with their friends, which they did a few nights a week, they would stop the card game and let me come out of my pajamas and read my poems to them. And these poor people who really just wanted to get onto the next hand uh, of canasta or whatever they were playing, uh, applauded politely and I would get back (laughs) to bed. But then fast forward about 50 years And I was a published writer and I was giving a reading in New Jersey at a library and a very old woman came up to me afterward and she said, you won't recognize me. You won't remember me, but I was your fourth grade teacher, Miss Fredericks. And I just began gushing. I, I thanked her so much for being supportive and for really igniting my career by telling my parents that I showed great promise. And she said, oh, honey, I told that to all the parents. (laughs) It meant to me that she was really a wonderful teacher. It didn't matter, did it? It had the desired effect, which it made them think you had potential. And it made you, more importantly, it made you feel that you had potential. Right. And, And it gave me the impetus to keep going, which was important. So you, um, you've said that you were raised to be a housewife, by a, by housewife. a housewife. Yes, indeed. And, and I took that very seriously. Uh, and I did love my domestic life. Um, and then it became useful to me as literary fodder because it was what I knew. Uh, there's more jello in my short <laughs> stories than I care to remember. Uh, but jello was an important dessert in my generation, we made very fancy jelly molds. I had one with diagonal stripes, I remember, <laughs> hours to make. But it was also, it, it, to me, it makes a wonderful metaphor. It's translucent, it's shimmery, it's colorful, um, it's multi-layered, or mine was multi-layered anyway. <laughs> but I always loved Dorothy Parker's comment about jello. She said, I never eat anything more nervous than I am. <laughs> that's brilliant isn't it 
I mean, obviously this would have been the 40s, wouldn't it? Did you ever question that or did you just accept that this was the life that was mapped out for you, that you would get married and have children? And Oh, definitely. I uh, From the time I was a little girl and I played with dolls, I was already preparing for motherhood. I loved my dolls. I dressed them. Um, and I had a little kitten that I also dressed in doll <laughs> clothes and put into the carriage that poor little kitten I had so many scratches up and down my arms from that kitten I, I remember I was covered with mercurochrome uh, but <laughs> I, I really gonna... I really wanted that domestic life and I did enjoy it but I also felt restless and it's the same restlessness that I think I give to my characters who are also living domestic lives uh, I wanted something else and the second wave of feminism really helped me a lot. It gave me permission to be more ambitious, to seek something outside of my domestic life. This didn't mean that I stopped being a wife and mother. I continued to do it and enjoy it. But I remember uh, teaching at a a writer's conference with several other women who were also middle-aged women at that point. And all of us got together and began talking about how we can make more time for our work. Well, one of the things we decided to do was not to give so many dinner parties, not to cut out dinner parties, but to give fewer dinner parties, to get better hairdos that didn't require that much upkeep and maintenance. Um, And we were really trying to think of ways we had to ask permission in a way from the world Mm. to let us be who we wanted to be. It is a patriarchal society. There's no question about it. And I love men and and women, you know, I think human beings. And um, and I think that it was a slow process, even for my own husband, to come to the conclusion that I was going to do this as well as all the other stuff I did. How old were you when you married Morty? I was 22. So you and- had, had been, you know... Uh- wife and mother and his career had come first Uh, so it must have been a shock to him when you went okay I'm doing this now right I had contracted to be a wife and mother I had not agreed to be a writer and his career did come first Um, I remember when he got his doctorate he was a psychologist and the excitement of it I made a sign for his desk I had a sign made for his desk that said PhD and made a big dinner of lasagna and invited several friends over to celebrate. And most of our dinner parties were around his colleagues. They became my friends as well. Uh, Most of them were male colleagues and their wives became my friends. And I'm still friends with some of them, the few that are left. So were you 36 when you wrote your first story? Is that right? That was the first published story. I wrote a story. Morty was in the Marines, in the United States Marines, when we got married and we moved down to the South and to a very small town. I think there were 5,000 people in the whole city of Moorhead City. It was a fishing town and we had no car. He used to hitchhike to the base every day and I would hitchhike to the beach. My mother would have been horrified, but I did it. And I had nothing to do. So I wrote a short story and I sent it to the New Yorker because I didn't know where else to send it. And I got a letter back. They rejected it, but I got a handwritten letter that said, try us again. Well, that was almost too much success for me to bear. So I didn't write another story. And then I began 
having children and making jello and stuff like that. So uh, I wrote another story when I was 35 and had an unusual thing happen. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. And I didn't, I wasn't even sure it was a story. And I showed it to my husband and he suggested I show it to this friend of ours who was an art critic and an artist because he was very smart. And he put the story in his pocket and went to a party where he met a literary agent who happened to be Steinbeck's literary agent. Wow. She read the story and called me the next day and said, I'd like to represent you, which is an extraordinary thing to have happen. And she stuck with me. It didn't take very long. It was a matter of months before she sold the story to the Saturday Evening Post, which was a very important publication in those days, very widely read. And in fact, my parents' publishing gave me more validation to other people than anything else. I remember my parents would call in stereo on two phones and my mother would say <laughs> something, my father would say something. And my, my mother would say, what did you do today? And I would say, I started a new story. And my mother would say, did the sheets come from Macy's yet? <laughs> yes. It was yes. as if I hadn't said anything. Yeah. But then when I published the story, they fell all over themselves on this stereo phone call my mother saying, I'm so proud of you. My father saying, I've always been proud of you. And then <laughs> my father saying, the Saturday Evening Post. Oh, my goodness. I read that at the dentist. No and higher that, honor. <laughs> that gave it authority. It was in a real magazine that he read at the dentist. And truthfully, it gave me the same feeling of validation. What was it that made you think at 35, 36, right? Now I'm going to I'm going to go back to writing. Can you remember what prompted it? No, because my stories don't come from ideas or from anything I've witnessed or experienced directly. Uh, They usually start with at the risk of sounding like Joan of Arc with a voice in my head. And the voice is usually the first sentence of the story if it's a first person narrative. And then I just go from there. And I understand poets. I, I do write a little a few poems still. They're not great, frankly. Uh, I never developed as a poet, but I think that's the way I start. I start with a sentence. And then if another sentence follows and another and another, I'm on my way. So the the title story of your book, Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, is that how that started with the line? Exactly. That actually was the first line of the story and it was moved up as the title. It's such a wonderful title. We were a little worried at Bloomsbury that it would fit on the cover, but the art department managed to do it very nicely, along with my mouthful of a name. Yeah, that's true. No, they've managed fine. I mean, it just really struck me. There's such a combination in your writing that, you know, most of the stories in this book are written in the 60s and 70s, and they absolutely skewer that time. And somebody much smarter than me said they're like a time capsule of womanhood at that time. But at the same time, today a woman went mad in the supermarket. That could have been written today. I feel so pleased to hear you say this. Uh, I'm so happy when younger women relate to the stories. And I think it's because women's lives have changed, uh, outwardly at least, but Inwardly, I think we have the same experiences, the same needs, the same desires, and that same restlessness still exists. And it goes from generation to generation. And it really is very pleasing when younger women like you 
can relate to the stories? Oh, I think the emotional drive of them that underpins them, that kind of questing for something, whether yeah. it's, you know, as you say, restlessness, whether it's a search for happiness or validation or internal or external validation, those things are just as absolutely just as relevant. When I was reading the collection, I was kind of vacillating between thinking they really remind me of the women's room, you know, the Marilyn French. Yes, yes. But at the same time, they are just a different generational take on a lot of the short stories that a lot of young women are writing now, but they're coming from a millennial perspective. They have different expectations. They don't even have jobs. None of the women work in my stories because... I didn't work until I became Mm. a writer. I did work in an office until I was quite very pregnant and having trouble on the subway where I never got a seat. uh, And I finally quit to go home and have my babies. Um, And then I just didn't go back to work. And that was true until I began writing. And then, of course, writing itself isn't a guaranteed income. No, no. <laughs> not at all. So no kidding. <laughs> I, I took the auxiliary work of teaching and I was lucky enough to get these jobs because I had not gone to college. Yeah. And suddenly I was an assistant professor at a good university teaching a writing course. And my credentials were by publications. You left school at 16, didn't you? Right. I, I graduated from high school at mm. 16. Um my seatmate in major art in high school, my classmate was Maurice Sendak. Oh, wow. Where the wild things are. Yeah, that wonderful artist. And he had the same feeling I did about school. We both hated it and we couldn't wait to get out. We went to a rather tough school. It was in a rough neighborhood. And I saw him years later. We shared an editor at Farrow Strauss in Giroux and, and Maurice and I met and I said, Maurice, you and I graduated and everyone else was sent up the river. You know, <laughs> it seemed to me that all my all the other people were criminals. I hope they're not <laughs> listening to this. <laughs> A lot of the kids in my class at school, they left and went in the army. And that was kind of the same, you know. Yes. yes. Same thing. That was that was the kind of option. So tell me a bit about feminism, because you must have been, was it around about the time of the feminine mystique when Betty Friedan wrote exactly. that? Oh, yes. This this absolutely that and, and reading people like Jane Austen. Jane Austen gave me permission to write on a small canvas to write about domestic life. And of course, her books really include the greater social and political life in uh, Great Britain then, because, you know, women couldn't get any other jobs. They, They couldn't inherit from their fathers. They had to marry to have an income or become governesses or prostitutes, or there wasn't a very big choice. And also reading Betty Friedan's book and Gloria Steinem and the onset of Ms. Magazine was very, very exciting to me. And my husband was nervous about this shift in me, but I wasn't looking for freedom outside of the marriage. I was looking for freedom for myself, for my well-being, for my development. Uh, One doesn't think of anybody developing after reaching a certain age when your bones have stopped growing and uh, everything, all your secondary sexual attributes have developed and that's it. But there's this inner self who keeps striving for something else and something more. And it's exciting. 
It was very exciting for me at that time. And it was harder for women. One of the first places I published quite a few stories was a man's magazine, Esquire. And it was because of Gordon Lish, this editor who had come in, and um, he was acquiring new writers. And he actually published three of my stories in one issue, which was quite a coup. Yeah, wow. I think the only other person who had done it before then was Milan Kindra. (laughs) no small thing. Yeah, that that really was a very thrilling time. And at about the same time, I published my first novel. So there was a lot of press and there was a lot of interest. I still had to do other things to make a living or to augment the living my husband was making. I have to say that all those years, he was supporting us financially, Mm -hmm. uh, working sometimes two jobs. And when we moved to the suburbs, because he, we were living in Brooklyn in an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment with two children, it wasn't too easy. We slept on a fold-out bed in the living room that collapsed if you sat on it too hard. <laughs> um, and when he got a job working in the suburbs, we moved to the suburbs to a very tiny house And I didn't have a car. He had a very old car that he drove to his various jobs to keep us going. And when I sold that first story to the Saturday Evening Post, I went right across the street to the Rambler dealer and put a down payment on my first car. So essentially, I bought another kind of freedom. I had been walking everywhere, wheeling a stroller and and walking everywhere. And so it, it really made a difference. And then there were some literary prizes that were financial, which helped. I didn't have a uh, a dryer or a dishwasher. I hung diapers on the line in the yard and so forth. And I was able to change that. I was able to get a refrigerator that really kept things cold. Uh, it really made a difference. Your money bought things that enabled you to have more freedom to do more writing. Exactly. Exactly. And how did it feel to be making your own money for the first time almost in your marriage? Well, I had I had worked when I was very young. When I when I Mm. graduated from high school at 16, I took a job in an office as a file clerk. I can't remember some paltry sum of money. And I also contributed to my parents' household because, uh, you know, I grew up during the Depression and things had been pretty tough. And my older sister insisted that I contribute to the household. (laughs) I do remember this because she was doing it as well. And so, and in those days, every penny I made went into clothes. Uh, Every other penny I made went into clothes. You know, it was just so, so much fun. And it happened that the office I worked for was an office that represented several department stores and the clothing went through some warehouse that was attached to the office. So all of us on our lunch break, all the all the young women went in there and tried everything on. Oh, lethal. lethal. Yeah. And, and half the time you you bought something, it was a week's salary. But that was all right. Do you still love clothes? I do, but I don't like myself in them as much. (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. I was the Imelda Marcos of my neighborhood, but now my toes are not comfortable in fancy shoes. No. At what point did you stop with the heels and the fancy shoes? I unfortunately inherited my father's bunions. (laughs) There's a a lovely subject. Um, (laughs) And... Just the toes got knottier and broader, and it hurt too much to stand up at a literary party for two hours in a pair of shoes. And now I still have a certain amount of vanity, um, but not the same 
vanity. Comfort comes first, I think. I want to be presentable. I don't want to try to look younger. I think there's nothing wrong with becoming an old woman. There's something wrong with becoming an old girl. And I don't want to do that. I can't, I can't be young again, except in my desires and my ambition and, and my love of life and of the people around me. One does forget how old one is until you pass a mirror. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. When do you feel youngest? Very often when I'm in company of other people engaged in an, in an ardent conversation about something or even when I'm talking to my children they're they're not just my children but they're my friends I have so much fun talking to them and when I'm working when I'm working I'm no age at all I am really shocked to pass a mirror when I'm in the midst of writing I can write for several hours and then get up to go to the bathroom or the kitchen and if I pass a mirror I say oh my goodness you know who's that (laughs) (laughs) because I've been living, I've been living in an alternate universe with my characters and my characters can be any age. And I identify with them so much, the male characters as well, because I think part of being a decent fiction writer is to always consider the other. You have your own experience that you, you must use and you have to use your own outlook on life. Really. You have no one else's, but you have to imagine the other, the otherness of other people, whether they're men or people uh, of a different nationality. It's very enjoyable. It's very fulfilling. And you almost get to live another life on the page as well as the life you're living in your body. One of the things that I really love about your stories is that the characters the female characters in particular, are so identifiable. You were writing what they would now call unlikable female characters at a point when you weren't allowed to. You know, female characters in particular had to be a certain way. Saintly. Yes, yes, perfect. Yes. And yet yours yours are not. They are, I think, incredibly likable, but also incredibly human. Did you ever get a kind of pushback on your female characters? No, I didn't really. And I'm happy about that because um, I think that they're good hearted and uh, they're flawed. They're deeply flawed, as I think everyone is. And I think it's very important to give your characters that human dimension, even a peripheral character or an unlikable character. You show one little thing that person does, the way he favors one leg when he walks or the way his forehead moves when he chews or or something like that to say, you know, there's that shock of recognition. This could be me in this situation. Are you a watcher? Oh, I'm an eavesdropper. I'm a watcher. I'm very, very nosy about other people's lives. <laughs> Um, I think Elizabeth Strout refers to this in the introduction to my book uh, that I sat on the subway and would make up stories about everybody sitting on the subway uh, because it gave me something to do. And it was also interesting and it was harmless. The stories in this collection are a lot of them are about the two characters, Howard and Pauly. Uh-huh. When did you first 
come up with them? Because they must have been in your life a long time now. They have been, and and I've grown old along with them. They're not my husband and me, but they could have been neighbors of ours. And every time I finished a story about them, I miss them as if they had been neighbors who had moved away. And I was also curious about what happened to them. And that would generate a new story, usually. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Did you envisage them to recur in the way that they have? Well, I did. And when the book was put together and accepted by Bloomsbury, I had not written the final story. Mm. And I felt that the collection was a little spare to begin with. But I also felt for the first time in my life that I had to write something more autobiographical because of the COVID experience. And I I had to put it down. And it didn't become a COVID story so much as it became a story about the end of a long marriage. And suddenly that seemed urgent for me to do. And I hadn't written fiction for a very long time. And I thought it would be like pulling teeth, but it wasn't at all. It flowed. I I couldn't type fast enough. I I think it was a 28-page first draft that was done in a week. Wow. You must have really needed to write it. I did. I did because when my husband died of COVID, there were none of the usual rituals of mourning. Um, There was no funeral. Nobody saw him when he was ill. I had COVID as well. We were in separate hospitals. He died two days before I came home. And I came home and he just wasn't there. It was not that he died. He'd vanished and and he was cremated with nobody to see him off and nobody to comfort him at the end. And nobody he loved anyway. I have no idea who was in the hospital at the time. And so writing this story became a substitute or a way of grieving. And it helped. It really did help. We did finally, uh, more than a year later, have a Zoom memorial service. Now that I finally was able to conquer Zoom, figure out how to do it. You're a Zoom whiz now. Right. I mean, the first time I used Zoom, it was so horrible. I forgot that I didn't have a touch screen. I was poking the screen trying to make it do things. It was idiotic. But I did. we did have this Zoom memorial And it was cathartic, but writing the story was cathartic as well. I mean, he had no one to say goodbye to him, but you were not able to say goodbye because of the COVID restrictions. Right. First, 
he was in the hospital and um, they didn't think he had COVID. They thought he had pneumonia and they were going to send him home. But they said he had already been exposed to COVID in the emergency room. Therefore, he had to be isolated, but he couldn't stand up. And we were both 90 years old and I didn't know how and no one would come to the house. So uh, I prevailed upon the doctor who agreed with me to keep him. And the next day he tested positive for COVID and his oxygen levels plummeted and he needed oxygen. And a few days later, I lost my sense of smell and taste and began Uh off. And so I knew what was happening. And I put some of that into the story. It's fiction. It tells the truth and also wrapped in a lie. Um, Because some of the details in the story, the the female, the Paulie does not go to the hospital. I did. Mm. Uh, I changed, I changed certain details of it, just as they're really not about, they're about Paulie and Howard. They're not about Morty and me, but I use our experience and assigned it to them. You were married to Morty for 68 years, weren't you? I know. You have to consider that very fortunate to have so much mm-hmm. time. And even now I'm 92. How many people live to be 92? It's, it's really fortunate. It's just the circumstances of his death that were more difficult. This inability to say goodbye, to to see him off in any possible way. I mean, 16 months later, his clothes were still in the closet because I couldn't get anyone here to help me. And then finally, my two grandsons came and just filled six trash bags because my husband never threw anything out. Belt, (laughs) socks, underwear. I mean, it was just... Uh, a lot of stuff. The boys each took one item to remember him by, and I kept his T-shirts, which I sleep in. But it was hard to live with all those reminders. I mean, uh, I still sleep on my own side of the bed. I can imagine. Yeah, you... it, it is a very strange situation. Um, Were you on your own, locked down on your own for the whole time? Yes, I had not shared a meal with anyone for over a year. And the thing that saved me was stacks of magazines and books on the dining room table. So I had the company of literature, which is marvelous company. It's not the same as a person sitting across from you and going over the day, the day you shared. And, uh, you know, there's no substitute for that, but it, but it helped. It distracted me from the loneliness. And 68 years is such a long relationship, isn't it? The kind of, with the last story, um, which is about this, it's about the loss, but also it is about the unraveling, you know, kind of unpeeling the layers of a really, really long relationship, isn't it? Right. All of those layers that build up as the time progresses between you. And you can hardly remember most things. You remember some highlights. Uh, I still dream about my husband. And in my dream, I'm not sad. Of course, he's also not dead in my dream. He's there. <laughs> Uh, so sometimes we're not even having a good time. Some some of the dreams are pleasant, some of them are not. It's like life in a way. It uh, mirrors or is a parallel of real life. Uh, I do miss him terribly, and uh, I miss ordinary company. Now my children, we all take the quick test, COVID test, and we get together, but not that often. It's all too annoying. First of all, I'm one of these old women who has to be talked through the test by her children, and I'm not technically inept. No, you're not. You're on Zoom. I'm on Zoom. My my grandsons thought it was terrific that I did email years ago. (laughs) I was the only grandmother they knew who did email. 
And now I have other good news. I'm going to be a great grandmother. Wow. In July, my older grandson's wife is pregnant. She is a frontline doctor. She's in her second year of pediatric residency, and she's going to have a little boy in July. Oh, that's so exciting. Great grandson in my future. Oh, that's brilliant. I was I was going to ask you, are you going to give Paulie a future, do you think? Oh, yes, I have thought about that. I want very much to write about her after Howard. And I just haven't been able to enter the story in the right way. I'm, fi- I'm trying to find that first line that's going to lead me into the story. It's going to be about Paulie and her friends who are all either widowed or divorced. They're on their own again, but they're not young women looking forward to uh, being with somebody. God knows I'm not. My my younger daughter wants me to go on a dating site and I can't <laughs> stop laughing when I think about it. I said, you know, there'll be hundred year old guys on this dating site. And you'll be too old for them as well. Yes, they'll be looking yeah. for a, young, a younger I, woman. <laughs> definitely. At least 85. <laughs> yeah. oh, no. Can you think of anything worse? No, I can't actually. Uh, I'm not as lonely as I was. I miss my husband, but I'm self-sufficient. I have certain rituals that I do every day. I take in the newspaper. I do sit-ups from a chair. Uh, I take my the early morning pills that I have to take. I make breakfast. I always make the bed, even though nobody sees the apartment. I straighten things up. I do the crossword puzzle. And my younger daughter and I do the guardian cryptic puzzle on the phone every night. That's no small thing. Which keeps keeps us going, keeps me going. <laughs> Frankly, I think that that's a wonderful thing for the brain. They're really difficult. Uh, do you have um, a bunch of female friends who you're, you Zoom with? I do. I have female friends and I have male friends, which is really nice. Um, I have younger friends, which is fun. And I'm flattered that I have younger friends, that they want to hang out with me. It's really nice. And I have friends my own age who I grew up with, even though we didn't know each other as children, we grew up as adults together. Um, When I taught in these various universities, I met other writers. I had known no other writers when I began writing. And now um, I hardly know anyone who's not a writer. My friend Linda Paston, who's a poet, she and I were fellows together at Breadloaf. And I read the delivery room scene of my book. Mm, We read together. We had a joint reading. And she happened to read a delivery room poem. And... We laughed about it and we said we should have been wearing maternity dresses during that reading. And we're still friends. She's younger than I am. She's only about 89. (laughs) Still a kid. Uh, Every minute counts now. Every year certainly counts. But you know, I have I have friends who are old who are absolutely marvelous. I'm friends with the actress Estelle Parsons. I don't know if you know her. She won the Academy Award for her role in Bonnie and Clyde years ago. She's a couple of years older than I am, and she's absolutely marvelous. She's just a marvelously forward-looking, energetic person who's still acting and directing and involved in theater in every way she can. And we talk on the phone, and she unfortunately lost her much younger husband to cancer recently. So we we both become widows. And the word widow really is such a it's a horrible great, word. It's a it? horrible word. It's it's like it's like a curse almost. Need to create something else. 
it, it makes you become a whole other person and you're not. You're still a wife who's lost her husband, which is very different from widow. Doesn't it sound awful? It's so, it's not necessary, is it? There must be another way. Well, it's like those other words, isn't it, that are applied to women that we try not to use anymore, like spinster. Yes, right. It's got that Definitely. same sort of ring. Right. And I never said this. I had an aunt. I grew up in a multi-generational household with my grandmother and an aunt who had never married. And I never called her my spinster aunt. No. Uh, she was single. <laughs> well, I think it's all of the same. Like women are miss or missus, or they used to be, and men were just mister. Yes, yes. And I noticed uh, the first link that you gave me asked me to put that in with what I wanted. Your pronouns, yeah. Right, the pronoun. And uh, pronouns drive me insane anyway. Um, um, I was reading an interview with you from 1977 on the kind of subject of you know spinster and widow there was a real emphasis wasn't there on there you being this kind of housewife turned writer right that was the first interview I ever gave that was the headline of the interview housewife turns into writer and it was as if I had gone into a telephone booth like Superman and taken off my apron and emerged as this writer and it didn't happen that way I didn't turn into a writer and I was still a housewife and a writer I was both I was a juggler yeah and they it seemed like they couldn't quite cope with that that you might be doing you know more than one thing and be equally committed to them and I think it's threatening it was threatening to some men including my husband at the time and then he embraced the whole literary world first of all he was very well read he loved to read and we loved talking about books and reading aloud to one another and not only that, uh, our social occasions included his colleagues, but also a lot of mine. And writers are wonderful to be with, I find. They're usually a little bit crazy and uh, outlandish and, and certainly articulate and just fun to be with. So I, I do have, as you asked me before about friends, I do have a lot of writer friends and some of them are quite young and some of them are my age. I think that's one of the things I'm going to give Paulie is the threat of moving her into senior living. Um, oh, poor Paulie. So yes, I want this to be a threat. I know that that's one thing that's going to happen. And uh, I live in a high rise apartment building in New York City, and there are many apartments on the floor. And when people move in with children, some of my neighbors are a little annoyed because of the noise the children run in the hall and they or roller skate or, or yeah. You know, sing or shout or cry. And I love hearing them. I love the idea of a multi-generational neighborhood. That really came through in your stories, actually, the sense of all the lives going on in, in the other apartments around. Yes, yes. I, I do think about this. And when you live in a building with, say, 200 apartments, you don't get to meet all your neighbors. You might know one or two of them. Was there a sense when you published your first novel uh, back when you were 44, that you were some kind of, you know, middle-aged hope almost for other women. Yes, I absolutely. I was billed as that by somebody. And oh, great. Uh, there was this whole brat, brat pack of writers. And my own daughter, Meg Wallace, mm -hmm. published her first novel when she was 22, exactly half my age, because she did it the other way. She became a writer and then she became a wife and mother. She married a little bit later and then had her children. I did the other thing first and then did the writing. But that was just, uh, I think, a product of the way I grew up and, and the times. Yeah. 
the times. How was it working with Meg? Because you worked with Meg on this collection, didn't you? Well, I didn't work with her on the collection so much as she inspired the collection. I, When I was in the hospital, uh, she came up with the idea of the collection and I wasn't interested at all. And then Morty died. So I was too sad. I was too sick uh, right after coming home with COVID and I just wasn't interested, but she persisted and she even engaged my agent and got him interested so that when he placed the stories with Bloomsbury, he actually called Meg before he called me to tell (laughs) tell her that it was going to be published. And then both of my children, both of my daughters uh, helped me with the first, second, third, and fourth and fifth passes on the book, reading it over and over again, looking for mistakes, for repetitions, for typos, and so forth. And they were very helpful because that was a little overwhelming. How was it? Because some of those stories must have been written, you know, 50 years ago. How was it? Years was the oldest one. How did it feel going back over it? Uh, I never reread my own work and I had to reread it here. And I liked some of it and some of it I felt was a little stiff. So I put in more contractions, which I hadn't had originally, but I felt, I felt they held up. But you were tempted to mess around with them a bit. Yeah, I wasn't going to be embarrassed is the way I felt. <laughs> At least I hoped I wasn't going to be embarrassed. No, you're not embarrassed. Um, Before I go to the questions that I always ask at the end, I just want to ask you a little bit about the aging process. And we've touched on it a bit before, and you've talked about how you are have some vanity, but not as much as, as you used to. There are some amazing phrases in your short stories. That uh, there's one in particular where you describe, I can't remember which character it is, her body is like a familiar dress that hasn't given full service. Yes, well, <laughs> that's, that's uh, women are hard on themselves, I think, uh, much more so than men about, about mm. their bodies. Uh, I think this is something we've been taught to do, that we always have to look our best. And it begins in your mother telling you that you don't wear white shoes after August 31st or, you know, and, and I remember my mother actually would do this. Uh, are you going to wear your hair that way? Yes. You know, yeah. That, it was that um, telling the truth and telling it slant and insulting you anyway. Your mother could tell across the room from a great distance that you had a pimple. Yes. <laughs> and, and remark on it as if you didn't see it blossoming on your own face. I loved being young, and I don't mind terribly being old. So in that case, what is your emotional age? You know, it's funny. Uh, Sometimes my daughters and I play this game where I say, if you could reverse your age, so I would be 29 instead of 92, (laughs) uh, what age would you have chosen to reverse it? And that would be the age, I don't know if it it would be my emotional age, but I think somewhere in my 30s. So if I was 63, I might have liked to have been 36. And I think that's when I first felt like a real grown up. And maybe it had something to do with publishing that first story. Yeah, you're at the beginning of your writing career. It was all opening up ahead of you. My mother used to say, and she lived to be 92, and she used to say, there's a 16-year-old girl still inside of me. And I'm hoping there's a 36-year-old woman still inside (laughs) of me who will write another story certainly seems like it I can't imagine you stopping writing at this point now that would be that would be very hard 
is it just a part of who you are? It is. It is exactly. So that even during the uh, long hiatus between books, I had one 12-year hiatus between books, I was talking stories sometimes to people. I, I remember telling someone that I had very worried about not writing. She said, but everything you say is a story. So I was wasting it a little bit on conversation. But um, I think what we do as writers is we try to make chaos shapely. Mm. And there's been so much chaos recently <laughs> in the whole world so that I, I, do, I do want to find some way to encapsulate it and make it shapely and, and appealing. You were talking a bit earlier about how, how books had kind of saved you, if you like, over the last year or so. Could you recommend a book? It could be a, like a book that's really been significant over the years or just one you've loved recently. Well, the book I love the most probably is Mrs. Bridge, which I talk about in my my stories. Yes. I actually, my character also loves Mrs. Bridge. It's just wonderful. They're like little blackouts. And it's, and it's a book that taught me how you can be funny and dark on the same page, which is a really neat trick. And I just love that book. That's by um, Evan Cannell. What advice would you give younger women? Uh, to keep on going and not to put themselves down, but to raise themselves up and just to go forward and to have courage and to have, and to have courage in their own convictions, not to depend on someone else. That's great. Who is your, this is going to sound like a slightly weird question. Um, who is your old bird role model? Oh, well, Estelle Parsons for one, Judy Dench, who I absolutely adore, and Diana Athill. So I, I admire the living and the dead. Diana Athill was just a wonderful role model for me. Her book, Somewhere Towards the End, it's so forward-looking. It's so without self-pity, uh, which is such a danger as you get old. Um, there's one line of hers that I've actually written down because I love it so much, which is her advice to young women. Enjoy yourself as much as you can without doing any damage to other people. And That's if I perfect. could give advice to young women, that would be it. And also just be kind. Kindness is, and it's so easy to be generous when you're young. And kindness is very underrated, isn't it? It is indeed. What's your superpower? Curiosity. I think it's what has propelled my career and it's what's keeping me alive. I can't wait to find out what happens next. I go as fast as I can to the door in the morning to get the paper, even though so much of the news is horrible. I still really can't is. wait to see what happens next. And I'm still optimistic. I think things will get better. Foolishly, I believe that. But it's that curiosity that I remember having as a child when my father lay at the foot of my bed telling me stories before I went to sleep. He would tell me Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And I would listen intently because I always wondered, would it end the same way this time? <laughs> no. Did uh -oh. it? Did it end the same way or did he change it? No, he never changed it, but I always felt it might happen. And, and I remember him falling asleep and my kicking him awake and saying, and then what happened? And then what happened? Because even though I knew the stories by heart, I had to hear it again with the hopes that maybe something else had happened. 
I want to write a children's book called And Then What Happened about just that experience. Oh, I think you should. That's so interesting as a approach to life, really. You know, it is. It's, and it's, then what happened? Right. I'm, I'm maybe stupidly optimistic about things, uh, but I'm curious about it. Even, even if we have to take some bad news along with the good news. Uh, my father used to say, even with bad luck, you need luck. And it was a very odd thing to say. I just wrote a poem about it, actually, because uh, I was thinking, did he mean that you have cancer, but you don't die? <laughs> Uh, you have to think of all the, the uh, situations in which bad luck can be ameliorated by a little bit of good luck. In that interview I was talking about earlier, the New York Times one from 77, you described yourself back then as dumbly optimistic too. Are you well, just as optimistic now as you were then? Well, a lot of bad things have happened in the world. And, and I became super aware, ultra aware of bad things that have gone on in history. But uh, I'm having some faith. Uh, I don't think I'm as optimistic as I was because there's such a division in our society now mm. that really frightens me. Uh, and I want to listen to everybody, but um, I do become impatient with what the other side is saying and doing. So I'm not as optimistic as I was, but I am forward looking. Um, and lastly, as you've got older, do you care more or less what people think of you? That's a good question. Uh, it's a very good question because you hit a sore spot with me. I have oh. I have cared about what people thought of me. Uh, a bad review resonates in my head for weeks and weeks afterward. Uh, I'm thinking, will I care after I'm dead? I mean, <laughs> this, this is ridiculous. Uh, maybe not as much, but that desire to please, which I think is instilled particularly in girl children, to be the good girl, to please others, to serve, hasn't completely gone away. I always hope that people will say, yeah, I don't care at all. But then to be human is to care a bit, isn't it? I can't. I don't, I don't believe people who say that. You put up such such an emotional wall when you say you don't care about what other people think. Uh, if you care about other people and how they are feeling, then you have to wonder what they think of you too. Yeah. I think it goes both ways. I think it's a circular thing. Brilliant. Thank you, Hilma. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Sam, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. Well, take care of yourself. Thank you so much. You too. Be well. <laughs> really lovely to meet you. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.